Welcome to Brothers Watching Disney Podcast. My name is Jeremy. And I'm Matt. We are two brothers that love watching Disney movies. Hello and welcome back to Brothers Watching Disney. This week we are going to be talking about the 1961 Disney classic film, 101 Dalmatians. Now this is a big film in a lot of ways. For those of you watching along at home, you may notice that this film looks a little bit different than some of our previous entries. In multiple ways. In multiple ways. So because of significant financial losses from Sleeping Beauty, and then because Walt was also, you know, sort of tied up with Disneyland and all the feature films that the studio was doing, you know, the live action features and the television productions... Walt was strongly considering getting out of animation. Yeah, like totally closing the department. Mm -hmm. He told Eric Larson, I don't know if we can continue. It's getting too expensive. Right. But the company's history was so closely tied with animation that Walt, you know, felt very sentimental about the art form. And he was open to any option that would let them continue. Right, yeah. During the production of Sleeping Beauty, Up Iwerks started experimenting with a new process that would allow the studio to transfer animators' artwork directly onto animation cells using xerography, which is basically an early form of the technology inside of your regular office copier. Uh I mean, we're talking about taking hours and hours of work out of the process. And this also led to sort of the, the distinctive kind of sketchy look Yep, sketchy as in it looks like you can kind of see the artist pencil marks. Yeah, not sketchy like, I'm like, what is this? This is a family (laughs) film. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which is looked at as sort of iconic for Disney animation in the 60s and 70s. Because those lines in the Xerox process would come through so boldly and there wasn't really a way to minimize those until much later. Right. Well, until they found a new process. You know, right at the Renaissance. Basically. And then Ken Anderson, who was the art director for the film, and he saw the the painted backgrounds that were being made, and he liked them, but he wanted to sort of flesh them out. So he added some extra details, and he wanted to enhance those backgrounds. And, you know, he brought it to Walt, and Walt, you know, his main focus having shifted to the theme park, gave an answer that was, yeah, you could... Fool around all you want to. And uh, uh, Walt kind of regretted <laughs> saying that. Um, yeah, so Walt just ended up hating the look of the film. He thought it was anti-fantasy, which is funny that you would want like fantasy in your kind of grounded story with the exception of talking dogs, but it's talking in their world. Right. Yeah, Walt kind of lost it a little bit. I found my right information that he was like, we're never doing one of these. And he made some cursing. (laughs) We're never doing this again. Ken, you're never going to be art director ever again. (laughs) Which actually, um, he really shifted the story after this. So he didn't do a whole lot of art direction after this, uh, this movie. But hey, everybody, it's okay. They did reconcile before Walt passed away a few years later. So this I found out, and I actually had to watch uh, behind the scenes on the DVD to sort of understand how it worked. All the vehicles in the movie are live-action models that they built. And they painted white with black lines around the edges and then springs inside. So 
they had some natural movement to them. Mm-hmm. And then they filmed it, and every frame was then photocopied onto a uh, Xerox cell, <laughs> and then they painted it the same way they did the hand-drawn characters. Nice. And that's a technique they used for vehicles up until the 80s. Wow, yeah. Disney was really delving into cost-cutting measures to be able to help make their films more efficient and therefore more profitable. Spend less, you make more. And several other things that they did was they started to uh, reuse the animation cycles that really worked. Mm -hmm. And they just started putting them into different things. I know one that stands out the most for me is at one point whenever Horace and Jasper are trying to gather up all the puppies, Horace accidentally clocks Jasper on the head. And then there's a close-up on Jasper, and he grabs his head, and his eyes shake a little bit, and then he's just like, ow. And they use that again in the very next movie in Sword in the Stone, and I can remember that very vividly as a child. (laughs) Not only that, they're going to start reusing character models. This is where we start seeing little Easter eggs, where you can sit there and go, oh, look, there's that character. I know you probably saw about as much as I did. I know that Jock was in there. Mm-hmm. And uh, what was the English Rottweiler's name from Lady the Tramp? I think he was just called Bull. Bull. He was in there. Peg. With Labrador versions of the other puppies. And then there was even Tramp. I saw Tramp on top of a car. Mm-hmm. And Lady is in silhouette in that same street sequence as well. Yeah, so they're reusing... These dog animations. And I think they even used the individual, some of the individual frames of at least the animation of Jock. Yeah, it looked very, very similar in character to Jock. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, also they reused some dialogue. At one point, Jasper calls Horace a bumbling blockhead, which is one of my favorite lines that Archimedes says in Sword in the Stone. Whenever they're, uh, I believe it's during the Poppity walkity walkity whack that sequence, but I digress. That's next episode. I have to say though, I really thought that all the things that they did worked well for the movie. I love the story. I love the style. Mm-hmm. The pop art thing is super cool. I love when they're showing Roger's apartment, and he's got that double base up on the wall, leaned up against a uh, something. I don't know, but you can tell it's been like imperfectly painted that there's this big splotch of, of a lighter brown in the middle of it. I just think it's such a cool look. Uh, that's I think that's one way I can really describe this film. It's just cool. You know, it's got the jazz and the blues, and it's this pop art. It really is. It's certainly a departure in style, but I liked it. Audiences liked it, too. We brought in $14 million on the initial run, on the initial box office. Uh, critics at the time loved it, too. Uh, Time Magazine saying it was, and I'm quoting here, the wittiest, most charming, least pretentious cartoon feature Walt Disney has ever made. Yeah. And I saw something that they said that it was the best movie since Snow White. Since the original. I know. It's crazy. It's one of those formulas that just really works well. Like I said, the style, the music, Mm -hmm. the cast. Oh my gosh, the cast. (laughs) This is a huge cast. Oh, I know. I, I'm like, how many names? I didn't even get through all the names. Oh, absolutely not. But some of these people, it's like you have only a handful of lines. Mm-hmm. You know, Rolly, one actress does Rolly. 
you know, that was her entire job was to be Rolly and just go, I'm hungry, you know? I say, I'm hungry 47 times. <laughs> and then you had some of our more seasoned guys doing a handful of roles, but but not really too much. You know, J. Pat O'Malley, Jasper, which is kind of just a lower pitched version of the voice that we've heard him do several times. Mm -hmm. And then he also played the sheepdog, the Colonel. Oh yeah. And (laughs) it's funny, you know, with everything that we're, you know, going through these movies with a critical eye, seeing all these actors come up again and again, we're starting to recognize their voices. And so when the Colonel comes on screen and starts talking, Oh yes, yes, yes. (laughs) It's like, that's the walrus. (laughs) Sergeant Tibbs, on the double, mate. Right, sir. Yes, sir. Coming, sir. <laughs> I like Sergeant Tibbs. He was fun. I kind of wish that I that I knew him from more stuff. David Frankham. I thought he did a great job. He had a, from what I saw, a very prolific career, but I didn't really see any big breakout roles for him. Yeah, he was just a character actor from the time. Mm-hmm. And that's probably the case for a lot of these guys. Mm-hmm. Obviously not the case of the lead, Pongo. <laughs> Oh no. Rod Taylor, who just before this movie came out, started in the time machine and kind of kickstarted his career. Uh, then he goes on to do uh, The Birds with Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, it's just a small little part. Uh, and then I thought this, this was funny. He was in Top Gun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not that Top Gun. <laughs> oh, not that one. Oh, well. Uh, this is a, a 1955 Western about gunslingers. Interesting. Although he was. In Inglorious Bastards. And yes, he was in that one. Yes. Uh, he was Winston Churchill. Yes, in the small little scene with Michael Fassbender and Mike Myers. That is so great. And then I just, I, you gotta love that you then go look at Kate Bauer, who was Perdita, the, the, the secondary lead. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, you can tell me if your list has more parts. Uh, mine has two. It has since she was on the the third man. No, not that one. The TV show version of it. <laughs> yeah. And then she was Perdita. Yeah, it says, you know, she just stopped acting. Yeah, well, you know, this kind of stuff happens. Mm-hmm. A couple other people to note. Martha Wentworth. Is this her first role? No, she was in, she was somewhere. What movie was she in before this one? Uh, or am I wrong? Am I totally wrong? I could be wrong. I know that we will be seeing her again uh, next week. Yeah. <laughs> as the magnificent, marvelous Mad Madam Mim. Yes. Okay, so I guess this was it. All right. I was incorrect, but it's fine. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, and she did a, a triple role. Uh, she was the nanny. Mm-hmm. And then she was... Uh, I just put this together. <laughs> she was Lucy the Goose. <laughs> Lucy Goosey. <laughs> Lucy Goosey. And then she was one of the cows. Yes. Which, again, that's crazy that there's these cows. They're just in there for the one short scene. And obviously, besides her, the others just really do that one part. Mm-hmm. We've got Thurl is back with a really big role. This is one. Of, that's one of the largest roles I think we've seen of him so far as the captain. Exactly. Yeah, he had, um, I mean, at this point, just multiple roles is a big role for, yeah. for Thurl. Because he's usually... Uh, additional voices, uh-huh. or it's just the mellow men singing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did love the part where he, uh, 
where Tibbs is on him, and Jasper and Horace are looking around. He's like, "Fire one!" <laughs> Pulls his ear. <laughs> Go. Of course, that also helped them find them, but you know. <laughs> well, they they didn't know at the time, but yeah, yeah, it's fine. And I also watching that scene, I wondered. I mean, part of me wondered why Tibbs didn't pull the other ear to fire the other leg, but then I was like. Maybe they were reusing animation. <laughs> it could have totally been, yeah. I did notice in other parts, now I'm jumping back around, that I remember at one point during the Twilight Bark when Colonel is barking to Towser, I think. Yes. That they reused a lot of the same animation there. And I'm like, it happened just, just a while ago. And then my last one that I want to mention is a very, very small part, but I just... I made a little boo-boo in one of my episodes, and so I'm going to rectify it really quickly. So, yeah, there's Dirty Dawson, who is the villain of the Thunderbolt TV show. Right. And he is done by Paul Freese, who is most famously known. Well, first of all, he was like the man of a thousand voices was one of his nicknames. Mm -hmm. But he was well known, at least between you and I, as the ghost host from Haunted Mansion, which a couple of episodes ago. I wrongfully attributed to Thurl Ravenscroft. So, my bad. Thurl is in it. He is uh, one of the singing voices. He's the bass voice during the song Grim Gritty Ghost. I believe it's his video that people look at and usually think that, oh, look, there's Walt. Yeah, the broken bust on the ground during the graveyard scene. Mm -hmm. So I did have a couple notes on voice actors that you haven't brought up yet. I know there's a couple others that I was like, oh, I missed them. Uh, Ben Wright. As Roger, and of course, one of our, you know, not quite our male leads. He was a human male lead. Uh, he was Herr Zellner in The Sound of Music. Uh, then he comes back in a couple roles for Disney. Uh, first, he's uh, Mowgli's uh, father, uh, wolf father, at least, in Jungle Book. And then he's Grimsby in Little Mermaid. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's actually one of two connections to the renaissance because mary wicks who is the live action reference model for cruella uh, she does one of the gargoyles laverne from hunchback Mm. and she did freckles the blink and you miss it puppy yeah i did have that i just (laughs) forgot to read it (laughs) i know yeah it happens again this is a huge cast Uh i'm looking at like what is it close to two dozen names Involved in this. Uh, and we haven't mentioned uh, Betty Lou Gerson yet. Yeah. Well, except for we mentioned her in Cinderella. Right. Uh, but now she's come back as uh, Cruella de Vil. What a character. She is up there with like the most iconic villains. You know, last week we talked about Maleficent being an iconic villain because she has this terrifying presence. But she's subtle. She's one end of the spectrum. She's very always very calm. I don't remember Maleficent ever getting upset. Or not, not very often, at least. Yeah, there was only the one time I could think where she uh, she was laughing at her guards for making the mistake, and then she started shooting lightning bolts at them. Yeah, you're right. But Cruella? What is it like? Her first thing you just see her is her careening around the corner in her car, and then she shows up, Anita, darling! <laughs> just, And then the big giant coat. She is just, she is in your face. Huge. I love how Betty Lou described <laughs> the voice that she was using. Uh, she called it a phony theatrical voice, 
someone who's set sail from New York, but hasn't quite reached England yet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Great job on Betty Lou Gerson on this on this one. Lisa Davis as Anita. She was considered for Alice. Didn't get the part there. She initially read for Cruella. Didn't think she was quite right there either. Good call. (laughs) Yeah, because Betty Lou, like we just said, knocked it out of the park. Well, and also just the the voice that she brought to Anita and the character she did for that was, I think, perfect. I didn't think about the voice actor for that. You just, I just sunk into the character. Mm -hmm. That shows to me. You know, we, we talk about, oh, there's the character actors. Mm-hmm. But also the people that disappear into their roles are really a special kind of voice actor as well. Oh, yeah. And then, of course, the also subtly funny Frederick Warlock. I've been faking. <laughs> You've been faking. <laughs> Jasper and Horace are great. Those two are just fantastic together. <laughs> I'm going to pop them off. You skin them. I know, I won't pop him off of you, skin him. Oh, Frederick Warlock, I found out, he started acting, his first credit was 1914. Yeah. So, yeah, he was 75 when this movie came out. And then he still worked. Oh, yeah. He, he still worked for a few more, I think, I think he passed away in the 70s? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, he still kept working. Man. Again, we, we keep wrapping around. Great, great cast. They just everything just worked, mm-hmm. and a great title sequence. I'm ready to talk about the title sequence now. <laughs> we haven't like, got to the story ab- yet, but <laughs> think about think about this, my friend. We've touched on the story, just in little bits, but the credits that happened all before this were like: here's a picture of names, here's another picture of names, here's another picture of names. Now we have this jazz thing. There's animation. It's all popping up. It was just fun. It was fun, engaging, exciting. I'm like, oh my gosh, look at all these different things. I loved looking at it. Just watching all the different, you know, here, you know, there's a bus driving down the road and the smoke coming out of the tailpipe it becomes Dalmatian spots. Yeah. And then here's George Brun's credit. So let's have Dalmatian spots on a music staff. Yeah, they did that several times. <laughs> like they're showing a landscape. Landscape artists, <laughs> you know. Did you see the hidden Mickey? I missed it. Oh, you missed the hidden Mickey. There is a hidden Mickey on the title, so it's you got to watch. You got to watch it again. As soon as the stuff uh, it pops up, it's Walt Disney presents, and then behind them, it's very misshapen, but there is uh, a Mickey head behind Walt Disney's name. Wow, it was great. <laughs> okay, we can talk about the story now. <laughs> <laughs> well, the story begins. <laughs> now, we're based on the 1956 novel, The 101 Dalmatians, by Dodie Smith. Yep. Uh, who herself had nine Dalmatians, including one named Pongo. Very cool. A lot of the sequences that happened at the beginning part you know, were actual events. Like her, one of Dodie Smith's Dalmatians had 15 puppies in a litter. And then one they thought didn't make it and then her husband kind of you know gently rubbed it a little bit and oh no there he is mm-hmm. though uh, her story was a little different because there were four adult dalmatians and 97 puppies mm-hmm. when she was seeing the um all the notes on the adaptation she loved it 
you know, she said that they improved her story and her character designs or their character designs look much better than that, than the art in yeah. her book. Uh, right. But the only, the only thing that she sort of missed, I think her exact words were that she was heartbroken about was the fact that they merged the character of Pongo's mate, which in the book is just named Mrs. Pongo or Mrs. Mm-hmm. With the character of Perdita, which was a character that was brought along as a canine wet nurse to help nurse 15 puppies. Right. And who was like, uh, oh, my lover's missing. And then he shows up at the very end mm-hmm. to round out the 101. Yeah, because if you add up three adult dogs and 97 puppies, you're like, okay, that's 100. Uh-huh. And then, boop! Perdita's maid shows up at the end, who was named Prince. You're like, the book has lied to me <laughs> on your last page. Where is it? And then I like how... <laughs> In the book, I thought this was funny. The Dalmatian Plantation, uh, or in the book they call it the, the, the Dynasty of Dalmatians, they buy Hell Hall <laughs> and take it over. Nice. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm really impressed with the story in the sense of how many different styles of movies they put into one. I'm reminded very much of my rant that I did during... The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, specifically Mr. Toad, having those different stories stack on top of each other. Here we've got a romance that then turned into this, you know, this like whodunit, you know, crime is about to happen. And then there's like the break them out of prison. And then there's like, you're behind enemy lines and you got to escape. With a little almost underground railroad style where they're being helped along by these random citizens, mm-hmm. which that's where the bolstering of the cast comes in, is that you have all these different animals helping them. All the different members of the Twilight Park, you know, who come in for two or three seconds. Most of them are just named Collie or Labrador. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I thought everything went together really well. Oh, and the whole romance angle was completely new for the film. Because in the book, the Roger and Anita analogs, which are just Mr. and Mrs. Dearly, are already married. Yeah. Oh, that opening scene is fantastic. I think that adds so much to it. And it sets up this, not even this expectation, but it clearly shows the fact that in this world, in this story, the dogs are the driving force. The dogs are in charge. And that's why all of the dogs' voices are lower pitched than their owners uh-huh. so that it, they sort of have a, a dominant trait right but coming back to how you know the dogs are the, the dominant driving force when you think about it aside from the badgens <laughs> kidnapping the 15 puppies every action in the movie is taken by an animal is taken by a dog right also you just gotta love the moment where they both fall in the pond and anita's like let me get my handkerchief and it's soaking wet. It's like, oh. And then Roger's like, here, use mine, which it's equally as soaked. And then they both just start cracking up. And then that's why they fell in love. <laughs> that's just the, the way that it's funny sometimes. It really truly is. I mean, uh, both of us can, you know, kind of have stories of like the moment that we knew that our wives were going to one day be our wives, you know, mm-hmm. or at least that we wanted to begin pursuing a relationship with them. It's one of those following moments. You just you just click, and it happens. The story was adapted by a longtime story man, Bill Pete. Since Pete worked on this alone, this is the first feature to have a single credited writer. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of same thing with the songs. Um, the songs are 
you know, written and composed music and lyrics by Mel Levin rather than a team like we've had in features past. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, we only have the three. Yeah, and two of them can't necessarily really count because there's the canine grunches, canine grunches. <laughs> I like that the music has a purpose because they wrote Roger to be a musician. And so he just kind of makes up these songs, you know? And apparently that's an, an old theater trick. So to make the music feel more natural. Right. And then him being inspired by Corella uh, is fantastic. <laughs> You've seen her kind of eyes watching you from underneath the rock. And then him up in his little attic <laughs> playing the trombone at the floor. Oh, I, I've always thought that that sequence is hilarious where like, <laughs> he's, she's trying to talk to him and he's just like, bah, 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 bah. <laughs> Roger's sassy. <laughs> I mean, and that's a great thing about his character. Like, he was never taken in by Cruella. I don't think any of the characters were. Like, Anita's kind of like, yeah, I know who you are. Are you in my house? You know? And then you had Roger, like, when the puppies went missing, he's like, where are they? You did it. I know it. Mm-hmm. Which then I'm like, what was your plan, Cruella? You didn't buy them, so you stole them. And then you were going to make a code out of them and go, hey. So someone else goes to their bag. Hmm, where'd you get that from? Well, apparently she bought the other 84. It was just the 15, which I I don't know why you got to. Why you got to steal 15? Why you got to steal 15 if you got 84 already? It's got to be an even 99. And then you became a news sensation. The entire tri-county area around london now knows that puppies were stolen and so people are looking for them dalmatian puppies were stolen that you desperately wanted to buy off of roger and anita radcliffe and roger radcliffe told you off yeah and now you're walking around in a dalmatian skin coat right and also let's be honest you hired some idiots to do the job for you well you think about it but these numbskulls these criminals kidnap 15 puppies with collars on that have you know, owners, you know, they have tags, and they get them out to the country and they leave the collars on. <laughs> and I get it. It's, it's probably so that we, the audience, can help identify which of the 15 puppies we've been following. Yeah. But come on, guys. Really? Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like, like every decision they make. She's like, all right, needs to be done tonight. It's like, all right, after our show. <laughs> Let, let, let's let's just give the the oddly sentient cat time to lead all the cat the dogs out of here at what point do the humans go wait a second like because there's that entire conversation where like horace is like when they cover themselves in soot do you think they did that he's like sure of course like he's so sarcastic but it's like the entire movie you're seeing dogs way smarter than you are like, when do you notice them dummy so then is Horace the dummy or is Horace the smart one? I think Horace is the smart one. He just doesn't have any confidence. And he's best friends with... Uh... Well, I think they're actually brothers because I think in the book, they're called the Badens, which I just always thought meant was just like a... The bad ones? Yeah. But I think their last name is Badden, B-A-D-D-U-N. Oh. <laughs> That's maybe the case. Wow. They brought us some good comedy, though. Oh, that was... Hilarious stuff. Uh, I also like that the because they're doing this modern take, you know, we've got the pop art style. You know, George Bruns made the 
score modern and jazzy rather than orchestral and kind of classical. Right. So it, it's very much making the pieces fit. Yeah. A few little bits of trivia here. Uh, this is going to be the last film for not one, but two of our nine old men. After finishing, Les Clark retired from the studio. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, he'd been with Walt since very early on, 1927. Yeah. So he was... He was very much, you know, one of the senior animators. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it was around this time that Mark Davis uh, moved over into uh, WED Enterprises, which was the the precursor to Imagineering. Yep. And then Wooly is going to get a promotion. Yeah, Wooly was a sequence director on this one. Uh, he did the Twilight Bark sequence. Mm-hmm. And then and then he goes to full director on Sword and Stone. Yeah, really the sole director for several films in a row. Mm-hmm. So apparently somebody with a lot of time on their hands sat down and counted. Pongo has 72 spots, mm. Perdita 68, and each puppy has 32. Wow. And so to, to keep the spots on each Dalmatian straight, you know, where they go, the animators thought of the patterns as constellations. And so every puppy had an anchor spot, and then all the others were positioned in relation to that one. Hmm. And then you had the obvious ones, like Patch has the spot over his eye. Mm-hmm. Lucky has the black ears. And did you notice, I didn't see this until watching the film this time, but Lucky has a horseshoe pattern on his back as well. Mm. And so that is supposedly where he gets his name from. Oh, I always assumed he was Lucky because he was the one that they thought had died. And see, that's what I thought growing up, too. Yeah. And I think in the film, that's what you're led to believe uh, because he's sort of the you know the one who has trouble making the the journey mm-hmm. he's the one that has to get picked up by pongo at a few different points but in the book there is a puppy named lucky but the one who was nearly stillborn was named Cadpig. but Cadpig is not mentioned in the film yeah so i guess they just merged those two characters right and i just want to just give my final thought on this and see what you think about it I think we need to make What's My Crime a real show. (laughs) That sounded like an amazing show. You get some bozo (laughs) serving jail time, and they're like, all right, you guys, you got 20 questions. Find out what they did. It's very reminiscent for me of a show that I watched when I was growing up called Figure It Out. Do you remember? Did you ever watch Figure It Out with Summer Sanders? It sounds oddly familiar, but I... I don't think I saw it. Yeah, so the idea of it was you had this celebrity panel, and then you brought in a kid, and the kid had some sort of talent or made some sort of invention or something extraordinary, and the panel of judges asks them questions to try to figure out and figure it out what that talent is. And so it feels very familiar to me on that. I also, I don't know much about the original show. Maybe you know more with... Maybe it's a play on What's My Line. I just, I, I don't know a lot of information about What's My Line. Well, what it is, I actually had to look this up. So uh, line is not referring to like, you know, line of dialogue, but uh-huh. like line of work. Oh. So what, what sort of career are you in? So that, you know, they're, they must have like an unusual job. Gotcha. And so they're being asked by the celebrity panel, you know, trying to figure out what line of work they were in but but still the idea of like because of the crazy laws that are in our country 
and the fact of the matter that there is such thing as a Florida man, the idea of what's my crime would be absolutely hilarious to watch. And I think it would be a, a lot of fun. They played it very straight. I'm like, you guys can play this super comical, you know, <laughs> get some wild, uh, some wild host who's going to be really sassy at them. No, I'm, I'm picturing the panel less of the calm, cool and collected uh, folks that you see on the, the show on in the movie, mm-hmm. uh, but more like what was that show you used to watch on MTV? Ridiculousness. <laughs> Ridiculousness. <laughs> you got like Rob Dyrdek. Let's play it back now. Or like I could imagine like Leslie Jones, you know, just like real loud character. <laughs> She's like, yeah, I did what? <laughs> I think it'd be a fantastic show. And I will not try to collect royalties if it actually happens. <laughs> Whoever happens to be listening to this. Well, we couldn't because it would probably have to pay royalties to Disney. <laughs> Unless yeah, they put it on yeah. ABC and then Disney owns it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's going to wrap us up for this week. Thanks for listening. I hope you had as much fun listening to this one as we had recording it. We were cracking each other up tonight. <laughs> Come back and listen to us next week. We're going to be talking about 1963's The Sword in the Stone right here on Brothers Watching Disney. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed what we've said today, make sure you subscribe. There are so many more Disney movies for us to go through. Hopefully we can give you some insight into these. We'll join us next time.